This is the Education Gadfly Show. Please, are you accusing me of Miss Napery? I, I know. I didn't. Try to use very careful words. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Karen Holly Miles. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Karen is the CEO and president of Education Resource Strategies, and she is also the author of a chapter in our new book by Brandon Wright and Rick Hess called Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck. But you all knew that, listeners, because we've been talking about that book the last few weeks. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Yeah. So Karen, give us a little bit of understanding what education resource strategies is. My understanding is always that you are consulting for school districts around strategy and and how to match their strategy with their budgets, or I guess budgets with their strategies. Is that about right? That's about perfect. And what I love about the way that you described it is that you linked strategy and budget, which so often are disconnected in this conversation. People talk about school spending, but they don't talk about what strategies they're aligning their spending to. And that is a huge gap in what we can get in terms of outcomes. So yes, we're a nonprofit organization. We work all over the country. Our work is uh, with districts that have a concentration of students of the highest need, but it has relevance to districts of any size serving any demographic. We are going to talk about what you wrote in your chapter and, and in general, what you've been doing on the school spending front, which is a whole lot. Let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Karen. Well, look, we know that all over the country, schools are preparing for what could be a very difficult, difficult period of budget cutting. Uh, Of course, partly because of the economic downturn caused by the pandemic, but in the short term, also because a whole bunch of kids aren't showing up for school and because schools are funded in most places based on uh, the number of kids. Folks are worried that, you know, when thousands of kids, kindergartners or otherwise just aren't showing up, that's going to result in immediate cuts. Even before the pandemic, of course, there have been times when districts have had to deal with budget cuts, partly because of enrollment declines or, of Mm -hmm. course, going back a decade uh, or less than a decade, but back to the Great Recession. So what, what do you generally tell districts that are in this position? Well, the first thing I would say is we have to understand whether the enrollment decline, how we expect that to trend. Is it permanent for the foreseeable future or is it something that we can act against or rebound against? So right now, during the COVID situation, we've got districts who are, especially those that are serving high concentration of students with need, in cities that have been facing declines over a period of time, who now often are facing another round of these declines associated with COVID. The declines are coming from a few different places. Pre-K and K, we know is down hugely. For example, in Chicago Public Schools, the overall enrollment is down 4% in one year, 15,000 kids. Mm -hmm. 40% of that, though, comes from pre-K. Wow. So, um, and then another big chunk from kindergarten. So that has huge implications for learning loss, but it also is a different kind of enrollment drop. Many of those kids will come back in first grade. They'll just come back without having had pre-K or kindergarten. Mm-hmm. That has a different enrollment implication going forward. We have others of that 4% who may have moved out of Chicago to escape, you know, all the things that have been going on in cities, as many folks have done in in New York and so on, and some who have moved to private schools and who may stay there. 
So that's what's going on right now is the districts are working with our trying to figure out what is going on with their enrollment mm -hmm. because in most cases we weren't sure because we thought we might see some uptick in enrollment with people coming back into the public schools given economic hardship that isn't what we're seeing yeah. right now we're seeing declines in enrollment and not including those that are in remote situations of course the first set of things you need to do is make sure you're being most efficient with all the things that you do that are not classroom specific so there's a, a benchmarking process that needs to take place to sort of see are there opportunities for me to cut costs in non-instructional, non-classroom ways? What I would say is that most districts right now, having gone through what we went through in terms of the Great Recession, unless they were really mismanaged, and there are some of those, most districts have gone through that process. You know, and you say, you know, cut the central office, and there may be a few opportunities there, but it's not, it's not like there's a bunch of glaring things that are happening. We used to talk 10 years ago about, you know, de-layering and looking at like how many different layers of people there are in central offices. Over the last decade, a lot of this has been done already. After the Great Recession, though, and as spending came back, there were some data showing that the, the hiring was coming back too, especially in that those maybe instructional staff that were not teachers. Is it also the, all these, you know, I guess, instructional coaches and the aides and the, all these people that are not classroom teachers, but are working in schools. Is that where you go? It's one place to go. And I like that place to go, especially because often those instructional support providers are add-ons to the, your core teacher, and they're often making more than your core teacher. And one of the key trade-offs that we often talk about is that if you actually created significant teacher leadership roles in schools, and you had, let's say, eight teacher leaders who were quite expert in each school, um, you could trade in the cost of those instructional specialists for um, having this really robust teacher leadership in schools that would help sustain these practices and build new, new things like that. And that really gets me to what I think is the answer in declining enrollment situation. So step one, you want to reinvent the district office. If you can, you know, look really carefully at all the things you're doing. We're wondering, without the districts we run networks with, we're wondering what folks are learning through this period of remote work. What are they learning about stuff they just don't have to do anymore? <laughs> and I do think also there's an opportunity in many districts to streamline the way that school principals are supported you could see me, you would see I have in quotes how principals are supported because so often the central office folks are not coordinating the ways in which they're asking for information or even trying to provide support to principals. And so instead of feeling like support, it feels like unproductive intervention. So I do feel like there's some real opportunities to look closely at what's the experience of principals that are receiving support or requests from information and some opportunities for redesign. Step two, you know, is like, is there more you could get out of efficiency things? I mean, we still have districts that spend way too much on transportation and spend way too much on food services and things like that. And those can be easily benchmarked and figured out. But step three is really, how can we do school differently? We either have to close some schools and get them at a size where you can, you know, leverage the number of students that are in there and whether the enrollment declines, or we have to figure out how to organize schools. So... You don't have so much fixed costs and so many things that can't be downside when enrollment declines. And we see in the schools that accelerate learning um, most rapidly and sustainably that teachers work in teams that will share the load 
mm-hmm. and that they have expert support in the work that they're doing to figure out what to do when um, their lesson doesn't work or students aren't reaching the, the target levels and then how to organize instruction so that um, every student stays up the whole way along in terms of the work. And so if we were able to do this, we could we could bring those folks back and shift dollars into teacher compensation, which is going to be so important at this moment going forward. All right. Any questions, David, related to that or anything else for Karen? I guess I'm just curious to hear about the change on the staffing side. There's been a lot of talk about teachers retiring. Older teachers tend to make more. Uh, So I guess I'm just curious to know what you're seeing and sort of what the implications are. Yeah. So just to start with the underlying dynamic here, when enrollment declines, districts don't hire more teachers. Um, And so the average teacher compensation goes up because teachers who've been here longer make much more than new teachers, about twice as much more by the time they get to the end of their careers. So when enrollment declines, you see in districts an average teacher comp that goes up. So not only do you have fewer students to spread across um, maybe the same number of teachers, so your teacher-to-student ratio goes down, teachers have fewer students, but their salaries go up. So the way that some districts have tried to manage that is by offering early retirement to try to encourage some of those higher paid teachers who may, you know, who may opt out, be ready to opt out, be not as excited about being in the role out of the district and be able to bring in new teachers at a much lower rate. And I wrote in the chapter about the process that Cleveland used with the support of their state that dramatically changed their teacher comp, the structure of their overall teacher compensation. What was also beautiful about that was at the same time they did that, they renegotiated their teacher contracts so that their compensation did not rise as automatically or as much based on longevity, and that more of the rise came from changes in the roles the teachers played, such as those teacher leadership roles. Oh my gosh, great stuff here, Karen. Tough decisions that are happening right now and and that are going to likely continue for the next several years. We really appreciate it. Appreciate the great work on the book and the great work you do with schools every day. Yeah. Can I end with a little plug though on this, which is that declining enrollment, like any disruption, which the COVID recovery certainly is, are these little moments that we hate that are really challenging and horrible, but that do provide us opportunities to question the way that we've been doing things, to question how we've organized and whether there's a new way to do it. And so I think this whole combination and confluence of events does give us this chance to potentially accelerate some of the sorts of shifts that we're seeing in research are going to be really important. All right. Well, thank you. It is now time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. I'm always excited. It's uh, NAEP release week here in Washington. <laughs> well, is it reason to celebrate, though? Really? <laughs> uh, no, that that's true. The results are very depressing. Although, uh, as I wrote uh, this week, you know, we shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, we saw that this cohort of kids, the graduating class of 2019, they had they did worse back when they were eighth graders uh, in 2015 than their older peers. So Mm -hmm. uh, this just continues that trend. You know, I think it has a lot to do with the Great Recession, but there's, as you know, disagreement about that. There's some, uh, Jay Green has, uh, it has some colleagues at the University of Arkansas questioning Kiribo Jackson's 
studies that found that the Great Recession uh, and the cuts in spending may have reduced achievement. Um, yeah. Anyway, these are important things and and hard to pin down. You know, this is right. the kind of right. These are the kinds of things that are a lot harder for researchers to pin down than being able to study a particular intervention. Yes. So we just embrace Miss Napery, right? Uh, <laughs> no, Amber, I am very careful. Collectively. I, I am careful. Please. Are you accusing me of Miss Napery? I, I, no, I didn't. Try to use very careful words saying things might and perhaps and possibly. But right. yeah. Still a great uh, Halloween costume, Miss Napery. But. Uh, Somebody went as that, I think, once. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> All right, Amber, what you got for us today? All right, we're going to talk about English language learners, which we don't talk about too much. So we have a new study out in the Economics of Education Review, which is a pretty schmancy scholarly journal. It examines how English language learners fare when they are subsequently reclassified or not as English proficient. This is a big question. It caught my attention because it reminded me of that Elizabeth Citron study a few years ago where she looked at admission lotteries and Boston charters and how special needs classifications kind of played into that. And they found actually that the, the special needs students could achieve similar gains without the traditional set of services they get in the regular environment. So anyway, it, this study similarly has to do with how we classify ELL kids and, and what whether that classification matters. So they look at the ELL, ELL class reclassification policy in Minnesota, and that policy in Minnesota requires all English language learners to take the ACCESS exam, which is measures English proficiency. It's the primary determinant of whether a student will be reclassified as English proficient. So the differences in instruction, just to give you an idea between the two groups, is that the EL students take a combination of mainstream courses with the non-ELL kids, and they also take separate courses designed specifically for them to focus on reading, writing, and speaking in the English language. So practically, that means they likely receive less ELA math and science instruction in the typical school day. And then the reclassified group must take all mainstream courses. But of course, kind of what we're, we care about here is the risk that if they're reclassified and mainstream too quickly, they might struggle in those classes and be better served by these English development courses I just told you about. So that's the kind of what we're trying to get some more information on. They use a regression discontinuity design that leverages the cut scores on access that determine whether a student is reclassified or not. In a nutshell, they're basically answering the question, how much would EL students who were not classified due to this policy I just told you about have improved in academic achievement had they been classified, reclassified? Okay, so they're kind of trying to do a counterfactual and, and recoup what it would have looked like. Uh, the main report focuses on third and sixth grade students in particular. There's a bunch of information about the fourth and fifth grades, and they were going to use those, but they had all these uber strict conditions that had to be in place to meet the RDD design. So they present those in the separate online appendix. So we're really just talking about third and sixth graders here. They use data from 2013 to 2015. They drop students that are far from the threshold so that just sort of aren't even in the ballpark, that they're only looking at students within about 10 points of the recommended reclassification threshold. All right. Leaves them 4,000 third graders and about 2,000 sixth graders. Key finding, reclassification had no discernible effect on math and reading scores for third grade EL students, but it did increase the math scores of sixth grade EL students. So comparing students who were barely reclassified or not, Mm -hmm. Treatment effect of reclassification is a 0.35 point increase in seventh grade standardized math scores 
for the sixth grade access test takers, meaning that those sixth graders who subsequently spent more time in mainstream math courses scored better in math the next year. All right, then they look at subgroups and the effects were particularly strong for Asian EL students, the vast majority of whom spoke Hmong at home, which I Googled, and that's the, the language in the poor regions of China, Northern Vietnam, Thailand, and Laos. And as context, they give you some information about the Hmong households in Minnesota. And basically, we know they're significantly uh, lower household income than the rest of the state and lower at educational attainment in those households. That said, the overall effects were also driven mostly by the first cohort of Yale students that were subjected to this policy. So analysts kind of wind it back in the end and say, well, we're really more comfortable in the end saying that reclassification at least didn't harm Yale students, given that they, what they saw in the other cohorts. Anyhow, I thought that was an important finding uh, because there's a growing number of EL students in various parts of the country. We've always got this discussion about the proper balance of English language instruction and mainstream instruction. So to say that, you know, reclassifying them in this way doesn't doesn't harm the kids, I thought was a significant finding. Yeah, no, very interesting. And I, I'm sure, you know, we got to pay attention to the grade level and to the subject matter, right? You can imagine talking about middle school math, probably be hard to find teachers who speak Hmong uh, and are great at teaching middle school math. There's just trade-offs, right? So uh, maybe the kids are, are missing some of the, they're not quite understanding everything when they're sitting in that English speaking math class, but that's better than the alternative. Uh, might, might play out a little bit differently if you're talking about you know, earlier grades or different subjects. What, what do you think, David? I think I agree with that. I think my question, if, assuming I'm following correctly, is it sounds like we're getting it about right but I think the implication is that, you know, we should at least consider reclassifying earlier at the middle school level, right? Because if you see a boost when you're reclassified, then, you know, presumably, you know, you would have been better off uh, reclassifying at a, at a slightly sooner, right? And the fact that we see no effect, you know, on the ELA side seems to suggest to me, right, that potentially you could reclassify sooner and, and not sort of have any negative effects. I should... Yeah. I should bracket all that and say I'm way out of my depth here. I, you know, ELL is uh, not my not my specialty here. But um, you know, to me, that results are intuitive, right? If you mm -hmm. wait until you will see no negative effect on the ELA side, then presumably you might be waiting a little too long on the math side. How else can I put it? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and look, it's just another reminder, just the fact that you know whether a student is ELL depends on, on policies at the local level, right? And so when, for example, we study how do ELL kids do in charter schools versus district schools is really hard because they may not be classified as being ELL in a charter school that believes, as David's saying, that, hey, we, we want to remove that label as soon as possible. We're going to err on the side of removing it earlier rather than later. You surely see differences across districts, across states as well. So it just is hard to know when we're comparing apples and apples here. But they're good. Well, this is important stuff, Amber. Yeah, I mean, I thought so. The point they made is, you know, you don't have a, a, another era of time where the reclassification cut score was moved, you know, mm -hmm. like to David's point. And so it's hard to kind of gauge, you know, what would have looked like had, had the cut score been somewhere else. I mean, it sounds like it is just largely or entirely out, outside of the hands of, of educators, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they say it's a flexible policy, but when they actually looked at the descriptive data, you see this huge, you know, 
bump right at that that discontinuity line where they supposedly have to hit that cut score. So it looks like in practice they actually are following this quote flexible guidance uh, from the State Department. Probably because we're not a thousand percent sure what to do all the time either, right? <laughs> right. All right, guys. Hey. That is all the time we've got for this week. A great discussion. Until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.